the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead and I'm a California Bar Admitted Attorney and I'm also a Bankruptcy Law Certified Specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. And as I've shared with you before, in addition to my JD, I hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I am a master of the laws of taxation law, and I'm also a master of the laws of intellectual property laws. Now, because of my training and my experience and my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and wealth creation and wealth preservation and wealth transfer and the roles these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. Once again, I say I practice bankruptcy law because it is an area of the law that runs contrary to Jessie J's lyrics in her 2011 hit song, Price Tag. For you see, bankruptcy law is all about the money, money. And who gets the money or the value thereof when a business entity or a family economic unit falls into financial distress. And just as important, who gets left holding the empty money bags when the money runs out? Is it going to be the debtor or the creditor or some combination of the two? Now, in my opinion, bankruptcy is but one side of the two-headed coin that it's all about the legal ramifications and society's stake in the creation of wealth and the preservation of that wealth and the transfer or distribution that that wealth generates by a personal or professional entrepreneur. And when the enterprise runs itself by its own forces into a financial ditch or someone pushes it off the road, bankruptcy law provides the rules of the road that we as a society need to run an efficient and effective and one day very soon, hopefully, a fully fair and equitable economy that serves us all. Now, I wanted to share with you, and I want to stress this, that it's my belief that every wise entrepreneur, be she the head of her own business or the leader or co-leader of a family unit, has to keep in mind, in the back of her mind, at least two exit strategies. One, for either transferring the business or the home or the other major assets to the next generation, or selling the business 
or the home or the major assets for profit when she finds another opportunity for which she's more passionate and wants to go down that path. Be it, you know, spending time with her grandchildren when she retires or maybe having time to start a new love interest. Or, you know, maybe she wants to um, spend more time volunteering at her um, temple or at her mosque or at her church. Or, you know, she just wants to do whatever appropriate or spend time and energy planning trips and traveling the globe once we get past this pandemic. That's one extra strategy during the good times. And the other exit strategy she has to keep in mind is how to save her business, or at least attempt to save her business or her home or other major assets, if possible, when she personally and her, her business falls on hard times. And if we're truly honest with ourselves, we know that sooner or later, most businesses and most family units will fall on financial hard times at least once in their professional or personal lives. However, the very wise entrepreneur or the leader of a family will not be ashamed to seek out professional help so she can gain access to and utilize part of the United States Constitution. And I'm talking about Article 1, Section 8, the Bankruptcy Clause. And she'll use that and her consultation with a knowledgeable attorney to at least attempt to save her business and or her home or her other major assets. And that's why I practice bankruptcy law. I do so because I have a solid track record of sometimes pushing and other times pulling my client ac clients across the litigation or reorganization finish line with as many of their assets as the law will allow and just as important with their dignity intact even if sometimes I must, and I got to tell you, I often do get on my client's last nerves by harping at them in order to keep their case from being dismissed because they don't want to fill out a form or they don't want to give information or the information they give is screwed up. And if they lose out on this opportunity, they won't have a chance to get a discharge. And sometimes that discharge saves them hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. So that's important. So in line with my bankruptcy practice, I also practice what I consider to be its first cousins. That is to say, debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and their sometimes wayward offspring taxation law. Sometimes I do this inside of a bankruptcy case, other times outside of the bankruptcy case. And I'm also proud to say, as I've shared with you before, I sometimes have the opportunity to at least attempt to seek out and vindicate the rights of seniors who find themselves, ourselves, targets and sometimes, unfortunately, the victims of financial elder abuse that, unfortunately, is running rampant in our country today. Okay, so I'm coming to you again today from my ever-improving makeshift studios in my home in a great world-class city in California, that is to say the always beautiful city of Oakland, California. And I come to discuss some of the financial and legal issues confronting individuals, families, and small business owners. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show does not provide any legal advice, 
nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with at least an overall outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find qualified professional help to help you deal with your legal issues as they intersect with finance. And I do this because, as I'm known for saying, I believe representing yourself in any legal matter, even I think when lawyers represent themselves in their own cases, that's not a good thing. You're too emotionally involved. And if you're not a lawyer, you don't understand the procedural issues, which could be just as damning as the substantive issues. So I say representing yourself in a legal matter is like taking a butter knife to a gunfight. If you take that butter knife to the gunfight and you're lucky and your adversary is napping and believe you me, she will not be, but say she is and you can sneak up on her and get real close, you might be able to scratch her on the arm or even poke in her eye with your butter knife, but more than likely, it's you that's going to be dead on arrival. And I'm not talking about your immortal soul or even your mortal body. I'm talking about your valid claims and your righteous defenses as... They're going to see the promised land way before you do, more than likely. But once again, I must share with you the purpose for Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money and sometimes the lack thereof and the things that you need to consider to protect your and or your families or your businesses, financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational form. So... Today, I want to follow up on a topic I began a few weeks back, and that was our discussion that was concerning part of the American Rescue Plan, and it contained two provisions needed to provide relief to farmers, specifically farmers of color, that is to say black farmers, indigenous farmers, and other farmers of color, and it has two components a $4 billion debt relief for certain loans that were made via the United States Department of Agriculture for to farmers and ranchers. And it also had a $1 billion allocation for the Secretary of Agriculture to use to provide training and technical assistance and other kinds of assistance to these black farmers and other farmers of color as well as community-based organizations, including such entities as historically black colleges and universities. And again, the basis of the relief as far as Congress was concerned, which is where all these kinds of bills and ideas come from, was that these persons of color who are farmers and ranchers had been and continue to be subjected to racial or ethnic prejudice because of their identity as a member of a class, an ethnic group, and not due to their individual qualities or their individual actions. So again, in sum, uh, Secretary uh, Tom Vilsack believes that between 11,000 and 13,000 black Native Americans, Alaska uh, Natives, Asian Americans, and Pacific Island farmers will benefit from this particular program. And that's because it will pay off their existing loans. And in addition, 
uh, up to 20% of the amount of the loan to be used to deal with uh, taxes and other fees because as I shared with you before when you pay when a debt is paid off or canceled that's a taxable event and there are tax consequences so that's what the 20% it'll go to the farmer for him or her to pay uh, her taxes with this money so uh, the last time we chatted I shared with you I heard from some folks you want to know why this money goes to all these other ethnic groups when it was basically the black farmers from down south who got this bill and they've been fighting for it for the past few decades. Why do uh, they or us have to share this money with other ethnic groups? Well, when we come back, I'm going to share with you uh, why. I told you about Hawaiians, so this time I'm going to tell you about Alaskan natives and why they qualify. So please stay tuned. We'll take a short break and I'll see you on the other side. Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our important topic today. That is to say the United States Department of Agriculture's Debt Forgiveness Program for Farmers of Color. And again, I heard from some folks and I am very well aware of the history and why this particular bill finally got passed through Congress. It was the result of decades of efforts by a group of black farmers from the southern United States of America kept pushing and prodding because they were basically, uh, many of them got screwed out of their land and they couldn't get good terms for loans. And this is seen as a relief measure. But I also know and believe that it was proper to expand the recipients for these grants beyond the African-American farmer. As I've shared with you before, I take great umbrage with the lack of cultural training and education offered in public schools. And I know that there's a big debate now. Um, you know, nobody wants to teach critical race theory because it might hurt uh, uh, white youngsters. They might be made to feel guilty for something that they had no part in. You know, I don't think people who had no part in doing damage need to ever feel guilty. But you know what? It is not a good thing to be woefully ignorant about the multicultural nature of our country and how it is that we have arrived in the 21st century with some of us earmarked for failure and others determined to be ignorant about how we as a society have gotten where we've gotten today. Now, last time, or not last time, but the last time we talked on this subject, I shared with you the fact that Hawaiian natives lost much of their land, if not all of it, because of a, the, the, a coup that took place that was the result of the desire of the white Europeans who came into Hawaii wanting to not have to pay an export-import tax for the sugar uh, that they got from the land. And so they held a gun to the head of the last queen of Hawaii and got her to sign papers, turning the territory over to these 
uh, European uh, 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 individuals who had come to Hawaii. And as a result, there's a substantial amount of poverty amongst the different classes of uh, would-be farmers in Hawaii. That's why I believe they're entitled. And I've also shared with you that I've spent a great deal of time of my youth in Alaska. I have relatives up there who are African-American, but I also have relatives who are Native Americans as a result of one of my brothers marrying uh, into uh, a, a, uh, the tribe of one of the uh, Alaskan groups up there. So I have nieces and nephews who are um, members of the uh, various groups of the Alaskan Natives. So I have a personal interest in this, but also Alaska is a beautiful state. And I'm also concerned about the environmental impact. You know, there have been oil spills up there and all kinds of craziness that have gone up there. And, you know, the Native Alaskan people lived in Alaska for millennia before the first Europeans showed up, who were Russians many, many uh, years ago. And then um, shortly after the end of the Civil War, America purchased Alaska and totally ran ramshod over the Native people not taking their cultural needs or desires of their own land into consideration. So, let's go north to Alaska. According to the environmental group Alaska Native at alaskanature.com, Alaska Natives are indigenous people, the indigenous people of Alaska. And they include many, many tribes, including the Aleuts, the Inuits, some of us call Eskimos, and, and various other, other tribes. According to the 2000 census, there are about 120,000 native Alaskans living in the state. And there are 229 federally recognized Alaskan villages and five unrecognized Alaskan Indian tribes located in Alaska today. And I'm sharing this with you because it's important that we both Caucasian and other peoples of color understand the diversity of the native people that live in Alaska and what their desires are for their own, their own land that's part of the United States of America. These tribes speak 20 different languages and belong to five geographic areas. And Alaska natives make up about 20% of the population of the state. Alaska's indigenous people are jointly called Alaska Natives. And again, they can be divided into five major groupings, the Aleuts, the Northern Eskimos, the Southern Eskimos, the Interior Indians, also known as Athabascans, uh, the Southern Coastal Indians. So even the Native people are diverse and have different desires We're in different parts of Alaska, have different dietary habits, have different belief systems, and they all need to be respected. Now, at the time of the first contact with Russian explorers back in the mid-18th century, Alaska was occupied by approximately 80,000 indigenous people. And the, the term time of contact, I, you know, I, I like that term because it, it also implies one day we might have a time of contact with other alien beings, but the time of contact is a really important concept to the native cultures. 
at the time of contact, the native groups were managing their land and their societies on their own. And then they contacted with the European, and it's kind of like the native tribes' cultures got, you know, swept under the rug, which is inappropriate. Okay? Um, the different tribes and different groupings had uh, interfaced with uh, Europeans at different times, and you know, not it's, it's nothing is homogenous in Hawaii. Not even the glaciers up there. Everything is distinct and should be respected as such. Now, in the early spring of 1942, when the Army Corps of Engineers arrived to begin the Alaskan Highway, the Alaska population was approximately only seventy-three thousand dollars. So, think of this huge state. It's the size of Texas has 73,000 people in it, the size of many small towns down here in, in the lower 48, which is what uh, Alaskan call the lower 48 states plus Hawaii. Okay, Alaskan natives, they vary in culture and have adapted to the harsh environment for thousands of years. They reach as far north as Barrow, which is right on the Arctic Ocean, to South Ketchikan, which is below the capital of Anchorage in Alaska. Today, Alaska natives count for over 15% of the total Alaskan population of 650 or so thousand people. Since the 60s and the 70s, Aboriginal autonomy has rebounded in Alaska, quite frankly, because uh, oil was found up there and the native people after uh, Alaska became a state, had started making claims against the United States government to get their land back. So once oil was found up there, uh, some of the money from the oil production was put in trust for the native tribes. But the government manipulated that too by making them for-profit corporations without um, really much input from the aboriginal people up there. So according to the Alaska Native Minority Group, found at minorityrights.org, before European contacts, the Native people, they lived in these extended families, and they were semi-nomadic hunters and fishers and gatherers, and they were kind of forced there and after to adopt the European Caucasian way of life. Unfortunately, after they became a state that Alaskan natives were treated like many blacks and browns were treated down here in the lower 48. Their schools were segregated. Uh, their uh, access to making a living was controlled by the state. And it's only after the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971 that ended the official ownership individual ownership of land and put the land in these corporations and these trusts that could not sell um, uh, shares for a certain amount of time. Now, the Alaskan population has been confronted with limited voting rights uh, because you vote in English, but many of the tribes don't speak English as their primary language. So some Alaskan activists see what's happening down here in the United States, what happened under Jim Crow and what I consider to be this new Jim Crow movement as a way to control the voting activity of the native Alaskans. So 
I'm saying all this to share with communities of color, especially black members of our overall society and community. We have more alike. We are more alike. We have more in common with Alaska Natives than we realize. And we should go out of our way to respect their way of life and where we can form alliances with them. And one way we can do this is certainly support their desire to control their land and be able to farm on it. And yes, people do farm in Alaska. There are really long summers up there. And then at another time, I'll tell you how I first became acquainted with a, the, a cabbage that weighed 50 pounds. But that's a story for another day. For now, we're going to leave it there for now. But always in closing here at Selwyn's Law, we want to stay on the right side of the law, excluding laws dealing with our federal government and helping it address some of the historic wrongs that have hamstrung farmers of color, including Alaska Natives, for generations. Okay? So until we meet again, please get vaccinated. Please keep your distance. Wear your mask when you're out and about wash your hands. Take care. Till next time. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to SelwynWhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the Law Office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content.